This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. We know that sustainable business is better business, that sustainable businesses do more with less, less energy, less water, less waste, less materials. Tech companies are cleaning up their data centers and moving into shiny new buildings with small carbon footprints. But is Silicon Valley really as green as it claims? Companies should be judged not only on what they do, but also what they enable through their partnerships and what kinds of policy frameworks they seek to create. After all, those same tech companies are masters of marketing hype and manipulating human behavior. We have an incredible opportunity, but also a responsibility, to put the right tools on the market for people to be able to understand the energy or the materials impact of everything. Green Capitalism in Silicon Valley, up next on Climate One. Is Silicon Valley really as green as it claims? Welcome to Climate One. I'm Devin Strolovich. On today's show, host Greg Dalton asks how Silicon Valley tech companies are changing to reduce their carbon footprints. When President Trump announced in 2017 that the U.S. would eventually exit the Paris Climate Accord, the CEOs of Apple, Google, Facebook, and Microsoft quickly criticized the move. They were responding to pressures from competitors, customers, and their employees. Many tech companies have strong and long-standing commitments to cleaner power. Yet those same companies are masters of marketing hype and manipulating human behavior. Are they really as green as they claim? To explore Silicon Valley's role in cleaning up the global economy, Greg welcomes three guests. Aaron Kramer is CEO of Business for Social Responsibility, a consulting firm. Patrick Flynn is Senior Director of Sustainability at Salesforce, a cloud computing company. And Linnell Cameron is Vice President of Sustainability at Autodesk, which produces software used in design and building. Here's our conversation about the carbon footprint of the tech economy. Linnell, let's begin with you. What's the business case for caring about climate and energy? Why do tech companies care? What's the business reason? Well, at Autodesk, and maybe let me just first say what we're in the business of. So Autodesk makes design and engineering software that's used by people to build quite literally anything on the planet. So if you think about the phone in your pocket, think about the car that you came here on or public transit, the building that we're in, even the movies that entertain you, these are all things that Autodesk customers design and make. And so when we think about energy and climate and the future, we have an incredible opportunity, but also a responsibility to put the right tools on the market for people to be able to understand the energy or the materials impact of everything, whether it's a manufacturing process, a building, an entire city. And that's what we're in the business of, is actually helping people design and make more things, but make them better and make them with less negative impact. And one of the earliest industries on board in the whole sustainability thing was architecture, because that's and you did a lot there using Autodesk software, because there they er clearly saw early early, the return on the investment, the reason like greener buildings make business sense. Absolutely. And that's probably the most tangible thing. And, and probably the earliest area that we've seen dramatic change here is in green buildings. And for Autodesk, when we started this journey 10 years ago, we didn't actually have any LEED certified buildings. So that was the first step, was learning by example and really thinking about our own building footprint. And it's, it's, the journey has been great uh, along the way. We actually see Autodesk as a living laboratory. So we need to test out things that our customers are going to be faced with. And our most recent facility is up in Toronto. We uh, moved into this building a year ago, and it's the first building anywhere that's been designed using a, a technology called generative design, which you've probably heard about in a manufacturing context. But you know, you optimize for energy and materials and, and daylighting and travel paths. But we actually surveyed all the inhabitants, the employees, to ask them, how often do you like to go get coffee? How does sound impact your work? Who do you need to meet with? We plug all that into the computer, and it generates and explores thousands, millions of options in the computing environment, 
and then gives us the optimal designs for uh, what we were designing for. So if anyone has a chance to go to Toronto, it's an incredible space. Now we're testing another one of our tools on seeing how the building performs. Uh, building operations, which is another new frontier for us that we're learning by, by doing. And hopefully no one runs into glass walls and gets hit uh, when they are uh, on the way to get coffee. Uh, Patrick Flynn, there was an all-hands meeting at one point in, uh, that's kind of the origin of the sustainability story at Salesforce. Tell us about that story. Yeah, you know, Salesforce is a, is a company that is really thinks about trust and transparency as its number one value. So it's very typical to have an all-hands meeting where everybody is invited, where anybody can stand up and ask a question to the CEO, and a woman named Sue Amar stood up and asked the CEO, why don't we have a program for environmental sustainability? And he said, we do now, and you're going to run it. And from there was born our sustainability program at Salesforce. And tell us briefly, you have a new uh, tower in San Francisco, so the tallest tower uh, in the Western United States, something like that. Uh, and one of the things that it has, we'll get right to this, right? You know, it has black water recycling, which is unheard of or yeah. very rare. So tell yeah. us. We're incredibly proud of the Salesforce Tower. So it's the tallest office building uh, west of the Mississippi. And it's the most sustainable building in our portfolio. I'll get to Blackwater, but first a few things. Um, the base building itself is LEED Platinum certified. It's got a fantastically efficient HVAC system that, that uses outdoor air to properly ventilate. The largest underfloor air distribution system, which is much more efficient than overhead ductwork. What Salesforce chose to do is fit out that office space with LEED Platinum commercial interiors. And we expect that the, that LEED Platinum Commercial Interiors project will be the highest rated LEED V4 project for commercial interiors when it's complete. And then, yeah, about a month ago, we announced that we would be installing a Blackwater system. So Blackwater is a water recycling system. Uh, it's the same sort of technology that happens in nature that allows rainwater to permeate through and be broken down by the sediment and bacteria and enter the river clean. But it's housed within the basement of a building. Now, the impact is dramatic because what it does is it reduces the water footprint of Salesforce Tower by an estimated 78%. Um, 7.8 million gallons of water avoided. And what that is is equivalent to 16,000 California residents' annual water consumption. So we felt like, you know, a, a good sustainability strategy is flexible to adapt to the circumstances, whether that's the circumstances of the business or, in this case, geographic. Um, we know severe drought will return to this region, and we felt like it was a great way to respond to the water needs of this area, and even more important, a great way to demonstrate that Blackwater is a fantastic technology that should be deployed, and it ends up being the largest commercial Blackwater system in the United States in a high-rise building. Must cost a lot of money. You're doing that partly to hedge against future risk and future cost increase, as well as some PR value. Is that fair? Well, you know, the system eventually pays for itself. The primary reason we do it is because it's the right thing to do. One interesting nuance is we've done it. Salesforce isn't the sole occupant of Salesforce Tower. And, but what we've done is put that in place in the, biz, in the building for the benefit of all tower occupants. So we've gone above and beyond uh, to provide that to others. So everybody in the tower can can uh, can drink the toilet to tap from sales. Well, yeah. a distinction. Uh, so, so going an extra level of detail here is the the water that gets treated ends up going to non-potable sources, uh, destinations. Okay. So toilet flushing, plant irrigation, cooling tower makeup, things like that. Greenpeace publishes an annual click and clean report that evaluates and grades major tech companies and their energy footprint. Here's Gary Cook, who leads that campaign. So what we focus on in Click and Clean is the extent that major IT companies are using renewable energy and are otherwise trying to reduce their climate footprint. When we started this campaign in 2010, we were initially focusing on companies like Facebook and then Apple, who were building their data centers in places that were basically increasing demand for coal. And so the challenge at the time was like, you guys are growing really quickly, you're growing in the wrong places, you have options to grow with renewables. You should commit as a company to grow, but make smarter decisions about how you grow, where you build your data centers, and start traveling on that path. And now we have over 20 IT companies who have made a long-term commitment to be 100% renewable. Salesforce has 
then they were one of the first companies who weren't building their own data centers to make a long-term commitment to be renewably powered. They're making progress. They still have a ways to go. They were an important trailblazer in the sense that they were a customer and showed that, hey, customers can have a big impact on, they have agency to change what's powering their operations. And so you saw, as a result, other companies like Autodesk, like Box, and others also begin to follow suit. They made commitments signaling to the market that, hey, renewable power is really important to us. We believe in climate change. We want to be having our operations power with more renewable energy and, and not increasing demand for more coal. That's Gary Cook of Greenpeace. So Aaron Kramer, let's have you respond to that. He's like, progress, they could do more. Is that, you know, generally your, your view that they could go faster, doing good things, but they could go faster? Um, so I think all of us can, and I, I would say less they and more we, because we're, we're going through a fundamental transition in our energy system. It's not going fast enough. There's been amazing progress. Um, some of the examples that we're hearing about tonight, I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, and we know that we're not on a trajectory to keep warming uh, at or below two degrees Celsius. So more needs to be done uh, by, by all of us. And I think um, there are uh, a lot of ways that's happening. Some of it is for, for business reasons. That, that is, the market signals are very, very powerful. They're beginning to move. Uh, clean energy is becoming much more affordable. Some of it um, could be about consumer demand. We've got two B2B companies primarily here. We should talk about uh, the role of, of consumers who are enabled through uh, tools developed here in Silicon Valley that sometimes create more consumption. That means more energy consumption. That's an issue we need, we need to think about. And some of it comes from pressure and some of it comes uh, from public policy. So um, I, I think it's clear that if you go back 10 years, there are things that are happening now that were on the fringes of the debate 10 years ago. Um, we've got companies up here committed to 100% renewable energy. There are a lot of companies that are committed to 100% electric vehicles over the next several years. Those ideas would have been considered fanciful 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. They're now very much in the mainstream and the momentum is really strong. So our biggest enemy here is time. Are we moving fast enough? So far the answer is no, we're not. Let's look at some specific companies uh, from Greenpeace. Uh, who gets an A in Silicon Valley? Apple, Google, Facebook. B, Adobe and Salesforce. Who gets a C for their energy consumption? Uh, Amazon, HP and IBM. Who gets a D? Oracle and HBO. Who gets an F? Hulu, Pandora, and this one hurts, NPR. Mm -hmm. So... Um, Aaron Kramer, you know, some of those are consumer facing some of them, you know, so what, you know, you deal with lots of companies. I don't expect you to address specifically this report that you weren't part of, but what makes, what's, you know, you go inside, what makes a difference between an A and an F? Is it leadership? Is it consumer pressure? Is it legacy? Um, so I'll, I'm going to consider uh, that score in the next pledge drive I hear on the radio. But um, <laughs> um, so, so here's my take on it. When, when, when I, you know, and I haven't analyzed the Greenpeace scores, but um, the way at BSR we think about this and we think about what a company can do, actions that fall into three categories, act, enable, and influence. So first of all, what are you doing you know, with the tools you're creating, with the buildings you're, you're producing, the things that um, you generate with your products and services? That you have a lot more control over. There's an opportunity for leadership, and very often there's a payback. Second is, is enabling, because we all live within ecosystems. So um, you know, what the Salesforce Tower is demonstrating here in the city of San Francisco is fantastic. How can that be extended to other new builders? A lot of building going on in this city. So how can, uh, how can that happen? How are you helping your customers become more, more sustainable? Um, so enabling, so much happens through value chains. We have to think about that. And the final bit is influence. And that's actually a good news story because over the last several years, a lot of companies, including those um, up here on the stage, have been very vocal saying, we need public policies that promote the right kind of energy system. And we saw the business sector step up 
um, at Paris in 2015. We saw the business sector step up uh, last year through the We Are Still In campaign, saying that the United States should not withdraw from uh, the Paris Agreement. And that's a little bit new as well. So I, I think companies should be uh, judged not only on what they do, which is more traditional, but also what they enable through their partnerships and what kinds of policy frameworks they seek to create. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the carbon footprint of the tech economy. Coming up, Greg Dalton asks how Silicon Valley is getting more climate conscious by moving downtown. Rather than go out into the suburbs and build a campus, we've chosen to build our offices in city centers. So you get the benefit of mass transit, you get the efficiencies of city life, and you've got the opportunity to support local businesses with your lunch decision. That's up next when Climate One continues. We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about Silicon Valley's carbon footprint with Linnell Cameron, Vice President of Sustainability at Autodesk, Aaron Kramer, CEO of Business for Social Responsibility, and Patrick Flynn, Senior Director of Sustainability at Salesforce. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. Linnell Cameron, one of the critiques from U.S. Senators who've been on this program is that Silicon Valley does lots of great things in their operations and branding, but when it comes to policy engagement, their lobbyists never bring up climate. They talk about immigration, they talk about visas, uh, other things, taxes and, and visas, but they don't want to touch climate because it's controversial. Should Silicon Valley go to bat more for climate change in Washington? So I would actually disagree with the premise. And I think when we see, look at the Paris Agreement uh, several years ago, we saw private sector coming together like never before to help actually negotiate that agreement, which I think was really, really optimistic. We also saw then with the withdrawal from, from Paris, this incredible rise of a collective voice from the private sector, thanks to BSR and Ceres and many of these other groups. And I think companies increasingly want to uh, put their voices together on climate and advocate as a group. But I will also say, Greg, one of the other thoughts is the, the, the language matters. And for some reason, the word climate is a lightning rod for many people, especially this company, but not, not, not only. And I think back to 10 years ago, we were kind of in the same place on sustainability, right? There was a lot more comfort talking about citizenship, corporate social responsibility. But this idea of sustainability and competitive advantage from a top line perspective People weren't comfortable. I know my previous role, I wasn't allowed to use the word sustainability initially. I had to name, I named my group Environmental Strategy and Solutions, two S's, and I'd flip one of them as soon as the company got comfortable with this idea of sustainability. And I think we're starting to see that with climate as well. We know what we need to do. There's, it's in the private sector, we're seeing that more and more leading with climate and using the word climate. Even Al Gore is talking about climate without talking. <laughs> about climate, sure. I've yeah. heard, interviewed U.S. senators, uh, Democratic senators, who've said their Republican colleagues say, I can support you, just don't put that word, climate word on the bill. I can't vote for it if that <laughs> climate word's in the bill. Patrick Flynn, Salesforce has been quite outspoken on certain social issues. In Indiana, when there was some marriage equality things that really you know, punched back pretty hard. But those issues... That, Immigration, you know, marriage equality, those are more personal to people. Climate is abstract mm. and it's not personal. It's not deemed to be personal. Mm. Your thoughts on where climate change fits in terms of Salesforce's political priorities? Mm. I think everybody has a personal connection to climate when you, when, and to the environment when you ask them. Um, I think the best thing going for Salesforce is cultural in this journey. You spoke about our um, speaking up in regards to discriminatory leg legislature. Um, the company was founded with philanthropy integrated from day one. 1% 1 of product, 1% of profit, 1% of employee time. To me, that was instrumental in creating a culture that really wants to do well and do good. And one thing we think about is listening to all stakeholders. So customers, employees, communities, and the environment as a key stakeholder. And when one of those need, is in, in need of our help, in need of our voice, we respond. And so I think we do think about climate as an important place where the company can speak up. 
just last week I was on the steps of City Hall at a rally in support of the Clean Power Plan. So we, we do think there are places where we can use our company voice um, for the environment as one of our critical stakeholders. Aaron Kramer, a lot of corporations, fossil fuel companies and others, and pretty much every economist on the planet says there ought to be some kind of price on carbon pollution. Uh, Rob Walton, chairman of Walmart, elders of the Republican Party, George Shultz, Hank Paulson, et cetera, have all supported this. We just went through a once-in-a-generation tax reform. Nobody spoke up for a price on carbon. Is that true? Did, was there any company who was saying, hey, this is a chance to put a price on carbon. We're doing this huge once-in-a-generation deal. Did any company stand up for something that many corporate leaders profess they support? Um, there may have been some, but it was very much at the margins. And I would agree with you. I think it was a massive lost opportunity because um, while climate may seem abstract to people, there are actually elements of it that aren't. So Governor Jay Inslee of Washington had a great quote the other day saying, climate used to be a graph or a chart. Now it's the flood in my backyard. Mm -hmm. And that is something that people understand and we're seeing. We saw it in Boston last week, not to mention Harvey, et cetera, et cetera. There are a lot of examples, unfortunately. So I think there was an opportunity here that was lost. And so I, I would agree with the premise of your question. And I think, um, unfortunately, I think the business community has stood up over last, well, last several years, last 16 months in particular on a whole range of issues. Um, but I think the opportunity to reduce corporate taxes and to reduce regulation was too much to be avoided. And most companies decided to focus on, shorter t on the shorter term than these other questions. You know, there are all sorts of models out there like the so-called fee-bait system where you've got a carbon tax and then money's returned to people. I, that's, I, I think, I think it could be sold because I, I think you can construct something that says, you're going to pay a little more at the gas pump, but you're going to get a check every month, um, in, in, or, or you're going to have your, your income taxes reduced. And so there's a way to do it, and, and I think we missed a massive opportunity. Lindell Cameron? Well, I was just going to add, I think you're right. You're both right. And companies are talking about price on carbon, uh, certainly setting prices themselves. We have a price. You probably have yeah. a price as well. Uh, and an internal price, which means if you want to go fly somewhere, you got to pay the carbon pollution price of that plane ticket. Yeah, right? we have an internal price on carbon that helps us um, figure out how to use a market system internally, if you will, uh, for carbon. But I do, you know, I know our, our um, team in, in the DC area is definitely having conversations about price on carbon. And that conversation is still young, but it's happening, which is encouraging. Aaron Kramer mentioned uh, adaptation, responding to uh, Linnell Cameron. You know, your company helps people design this future. We're talking about a future where the waterline, the coast, where most people live on the coast, that waterline is going to change in people's lifetimes. And one person said here recently, it's going to be permanently temporary. That is, we're going to have to build buildings that maybe have to move up an inch or a foot or roll them back. So yeah. how are you thinking about adaptation and the, the future that we're going to build with this volatile climate? Yeah, I would say uh, most of our customers are thinking about both mitigation, so reducing further climate impacts, uh, as well as adapting and preparing for a warmer climate, and not just sea level rise. I mean, it's, it's too much water and too little water in different parts of the, the world. And so... We are working with uh, customers on city design. In fact, here in San Francisco, Resilient by Design is a big effort that came out of New York. Uh, they had a competition. Rockefeller supported this around rebuild by design after Sandy. Now we're doing that here in the Bay Area about around resilience. How do we preempt and prepare for uh, what's coming? And you know, we've got customers, certainly through the Autodesk Foundation, that are working in Myanmar and Rwanda and all different places around irrigation and solar. And this is really about adaptation because climate is impacting people around the world in very, very different 
different ways. Yeah, and there's real, some real exciting stuff to kind of rebuild this future and not see climate as an opportunity, not just a threat or, mm-hmm. or a downer. Patrick Flynn, Silicon Valley companies are known to have these lavish buffets for their employees. And actually, at some companies, it's a problem because you know, people gain weight. Mm-hmm. But Salesforce mm-hmm. doesn't have a cafeteria. Mm-hmm. Is it because you're too cheap? Why is, it, <laughs> why, why is that? You, you know, we've got, a, I think, a really great real estate and office strategy, which has a bunch of benefits, many of them environmental. So rather than go out into the suburbs and build a campus, we've chosen to build our offices in city centers. So you get the benefit of mass transit, you get the benefit of the efficiencies of city life, you happen to be where the employees want to live and work, and you've got the opportunity to, to support local businesses with your lunch decision. And, and what we do is, whether it's New York or Indianapolis or New York, London, we try to find locations in sustainable buildings that are also in the city centers that, that allow us to have all these environmental benefits. Aaron Kramer, one of the things that people don't like to talk about in this conversation is that all of the stock valuations and, and all of our, if you have a retirement plan, it's premised upon compounded quarterly earnings growth. And all these talks about the kind of around the edges, but the central driver, and I've had people from Patagonia and elsewhere say, that's the problem. Compounded, forever, exponential growth. No one, that's scary to talk about because then you're starting to question capitalism. Do you go there? Well, I, I don't question capitalism, but I question the way capitalism is currently practiced in some circumstances. We're a, we're a business network. We believe in, in the market. Um, you know, it's very interesting. I, I attended the World Economic Forum in Davos this year, and the G word was no longer taboo. And, and the to question word growth. Is growth, exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. There were spontaneous calls from CEOs saying, Exactly what you're saying, and um, many of them are, you know, are, are I, I've said before, they're uh, lavishly paid prisoners of a system that they inhabit. You know that they, mm-hmm. uh, you know, d- don't shed a lot of tears. They're well taken care of, but the system is punishing, and it, and, and they know that it skews decision making. So it is a big issue, but you know we're seeing some change. So um, we're seeing uh, in 10Ks more and more, there is reference. A- annual reports. Oh, sorry. Yeah, in the annual reports. Um, there's an effort uh, called a Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. I've been saying it for two years. I have to do it slowly every time, <laughs> um, which is calling for companies to talk about the scenarios they see for the future. Because if you look to the future beyond the next quarter, you start to make different decisions. So things are starting to move. They're starting to change. Um, but it hasn't yet taken hold. I would bet, and I'll, I'll come back in 20 years, I would bet in 20 years uh, some of the rules in the marketplace will be different um, because there is a recognition that companies, publicly traded companies in particular, end up making short-sighted decisions because that's what investment analysts are looking for. And there's increasing recognition that that doesn't really serve anyone's interest. And there's some talk about uh, the pref- some companies prefer to stay private or go private. Are Aaron Kramer, are private companies, uh, do they have a little more room to make longer decisions, you know, five-year paybacks rather than two-year paybacks on things? Do they have a little more room to be green? Yes. Uh, they, now, not all of them practice it, but um, there's no doubt that there is more room uh, for privately held companies. And that's one of the reasons why you see actually the number of public companies as a share of the market. I know the statistics, but it is shrinking. It's not collapsing, mm. but it is shrinking because of these and other constraints on publicly held companies. And we're all complicit because we like to see our retirement plans, 401ks, go up. And it's because of that G word. We're talking about capitalism in Silicon Valley and beyond with Aaron Kramer, CEO of Business for Social Responsibility. Also, Linnell Cameron with Autodesk and Patrick Flynn from Salesforce. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to our lightning round at Climate One. Um, time for a quick question and quick answer. The first section here for our guests is true or false. Aaron Kramer, most Wall Street analysts don't care about sustainability metrics. True. Linnell Cameron, uh, preppers can use Autodesk software to design survival pods for climate doomsday. 
true. <laughs> uh, Patrick Flynn, Salesforce employees privately share jokes about the phallic nature of the company's news tower that dominates the San Francisco skyline. False. It's public. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Linnell Cameron, true or false, most corporate philanthropy is really tax-deductible marketing. False. Uh, this is a short answer question. Um, Linnell Cameron, a company that comes to mind quickly, do you think should get more credit for its sustainability oh, efforts? Gosh. Um, I should, someone said Salesforce. <laughs> 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 All right, we'll let that one oh, fly. Boy. <laughs> uh, Patrick Flynn, a company, <laughs> you can return the favor. Yeah, <laughs> uh, a company that gets too much credit for its sustainability uh, efforts. <laughs> Ooh, I uh, NPR, we learned earlier. Uh, ooch, okay, Blue Nail Cameron? Wait, too much credit. Too much. Oh, yeah, maybe. You got an F, didn't you? Didn't we learn that? Yeah, turn it back, that's uh, fair. I would say Apple. Gets too much credit. Mm -hmm. Recently. Okay. They're making a lot of progress um, of late, and that's great to see, but there's still a lot more that they could do. And they make products that are different than a lot of companies up here because they, they're actually a manufacturing company. For a long time, they were not very green because Steve Jobs was not a sustainability leader at all. Yes. Um, interesting. And okay. I was at HP for years, so. <laughs> little rival there. Okay. Um, Aaron Kramer, one company you really wish would hire you to help clean up their act. I'll call Elon Musk. I'll say Tesla for 200. Think they need to? Think they need yes. it? Yes. Really? Yeah. How so? Um, there are health and safety issues in their manufacturing process. Trying that to make cars too fast. Addressed. Um, it, yep. And uh, I think there are questions about the materials that are going in, not only to their electric vehicles, but more generally. So um, I think the car is wonderful. The cars are wonderful. But that doesn't mean that there are no issues there. Hmm. And then there's SpaceX. Yes. <laughs> Sending stuff into outer space. Okay. Patrick Flynn, your personal carbon sin. Air travel. Right. I, one. Yeah. Linnell Cameron, the carbon sin of your boss. Ooh. Um, Besides air travel. A car. Car. Yeah. I just heard about the car that she has been driving. <laughs> Big one, gas powered. I, I don't have I don't have <laughs> okay. firsthand data, okay. but I would say that's many people's sin. Probably yep. the car that mine's probably hopping in taxis in San Francisco. Uh, last one, Aaron Kramer, the carbon sin of someone in your family. Oh, my 15-year-old son devours meat like it's going to go away tomorrow. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest things people can do to reduce their carbon footprint: get off that red meat. Let's give our round of applause to getting through the gauntlet here. <laughs> You're listening to a conversation about green capitalism in Silicon Valley. This is Climate One. Coming up, Greg Dalton asks how tech companies are even betting on green in Las Vegas. We sat down with sustainability officers at MGM, Mandalay Bay, Sands, and had a conversation with them about everything from electricity to recycling to meat and food waste. That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about how green Silicon Valley really is with Linnell Cameron, Vice President of Sustainability at Autodesk, Aaron Kramer, CEO of Business for Social Responsibility, and Patrick Flynn, Senior Director of Sustainability at Salesforce. Here's Greg. Patrick Flynn, global electricity is, is about 20% renewable now. There's a lot of progress on electricity, and people talk about energy. They Sometimes you break it down, there's electricity, and then there's energy, which is to heat your home or move your car. Electricity, lots of good things are happening. Solar and wind, data centers, et cetera. Oil, not so much. Mm. Oil still kind of got a grip on global transportation. And I can hear how data centers are getting at solar and wind, but what are companies like Salesforce doing to get at the oil monopoly? Well, when we look at our strategy, we start first with where, what is our, the nature of our operations. As a service business, as a cloud pioneer, we need to think about the cloud, think about data centers. Most of our energy is in the form of electricity. So you touched on it, but our 100% renewable energy commitment, um, we were one of the first to sign on back in 2013. You saw that in the, in mm -hmm. the Greenpeace mm -hmm. um, video. We really think about that as 
primary in terms of our, our strategy, decarbonizing the electric grid. And when we think about that, it's a three-pronged strategy. Avoid, reduce, mitigate. So avoid is where do you site your data centers? Is, is it in a clean or a dirty grid? Um, can you find capacity in your existing infrastructure that precludes the need to build the next data center in the first place? Then there's reduction. And how do we take operational efficiencies and better software design, better hardware architecture to wring out energy waste within the data centers? Last is mitigate. Within mitigate, first is renewable energy. And when we think about that, the most important thing is additional local job creating, hopefully market moving strategies in the locations where we have our operations. So we take a, um, a zoomed in approach on local impact and that can take time. And so while we develop that strategy, wait for the regulatory and policy changes to take effect in different states or in different countries. We also know that climate change is incredibly urgent. And so we think about carbon offsets. And this past year, we announced that we'd reached net zero greenhouse gas emissions and now deliver a carbon neutral cloud to all of our customers every single day. Now for that, Geography was less important. We didn't go local carbon projects because it's one atmosphere, one carbon balance. And so we scoured the globe for those projects that had the greatest, well, certainly environmental credibility, but really were there other co-benefits to them, and in particular, equality benefits. Equality is a, a, a strong value that we cherish at, at Salesforce. We know, speaking of resilience earlier, we know that Climate change disproportionately impacts our most disadvantaged communities. So, so investing in projects that yield carbon credits that also change people's lives today, clean cook stoves, solar hot water heaters. And so some of those get to additional fuels and changing out um, how, how water is heated in India, reducing the amount of deforestation that happens in Honduras. So through that carbon strategy, we have the opportunity to really think about fuels other than electricity. Aaron Kramer, let's get you in here because a lot of, uh, if, unless companies are in manufacturing, they're not directly using oil, but their employees use oil to get to, the, to work every day. Maybe they walk if they work at Salesforce or, or Autodesk, but a lot of them burn fossil fuels to get to work. Is that, a, is that a lever that companies can use to, to get at oil if that's not part of their core operations? Absolutely, and a lot of companies actually, just like some have signed up for 100% renewable energy, more companies are committing to 100% electric vehicles. And really? the, the debate here again, there's a lot of signs of progress. There are a lot of people who believe that in the middle of the next decade, we're gonna see the hockey stick approach, a rapid increase in the uptake of, uh, of electric vehicles. And this is something that, uh, you know, in his outgoing call with analysts last year, the outgoing uh, CFO of Shell said he felt that that was going to be uh, around the year 2025, that, that we would see a tipping point. Now, it was his last call with analysts <laughs> um, at, at when, his, when his departure was known. So uh, that, was, that was quite interesting. But I, I think it's recognized that this change is coming. And, and there's an important piece here because people are going to find that this is not a hard transition yeah. to something that's more difficult, but a good transition to a product that's better, that actually operates uh, more cheaply, um, runs more cleanly. And so I, I think there's a big story there that relates not only to electric vehicles, but to other similar transitions that are also taking place. One of those big transitions, Leno Cameron, is to automated, connected electric vehicles, robotic cars, right? Uh, which you're probably uh, involved in design, helping envision that future. And there's a couple of visions. One is that, oh, there's these uh, automated, very efficient electric cars are, are humming around. Other ways, the complete gridlock. I don't know if you have a thought on, on how Autodesk is going to position itself in this, in this uh, uh, robotic cars bringing people to your office. So automated vehicles, self-driving cars is not necessarily going to save the world. Uh, mass transit is the way that you move people quickly through cities, and we need to focus on that. 
obviously there is lots of benefits of having self-driving cars so that people don't have to own cars and you can use cars when you need them, uh, but it goes way beyond uh, that being the solution for this. And, and just to build on your point as well, you know, we think about our commute footprint, we think about travel, we think about these big events that we have in Vegas and the air travel to get there, and those are all incorporated into the strategy that we use, and, and certainly having uh, offices in cities on public transport we talked about, so people don't have to drive cars. Uh, yet we also have benefits for employees to buy EVs um, with discounts with some of our customers who are in that business. So there is work that's happening. And, and even in terms of events, having more online participation so that people don't have to travel to events. And that's the obvious way to reduce the oil and fossil fuel but people like business trips. They get the expense account. They get to go drink in Vegas. Mm -hmm. I mean, right? I mean, you know, do you really think that event in Vegas is clean and green? Oh, um, actually, the story is a little bit surprising. So people think about having an event in Vegas would be the least sustainable place to have an event. And we've actually found the opposite. So about five years ago, we sat down with sustainability officers at the vendors that we've worked with and we're considering working with. So MGM, Mandalay Bay, Sands, and had a conversation with them about how do you reduce the footprint of these events in Vegas? Everything from electricity to recycling to meat and food waste, which people don't think of as a climate issue, but food waste is really significant. And you would be surprised how quickly they were able to turn knowing that their customers care about uh, will care about these in the future. And so when we compared an event in Vegas to an event here in San Francisco, the economies of scale, the transportation, the logistics that were in Vegas actually panned out. And there's actually, if you Google sustainability at AU, you can hear from these vendors about what's happening in Vegas as a result of that meeting five years ago. We're going to go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, I'm Lisa Dans with Citizens Climate Lobby. My question, um, Linnell Cameron, you mentioned that you have an internal price on carbon at Autodesk. I'm wondering, what's your price and does it change over time? And do you know the same question about other companies? Uh, we don't communicate our price externally. So we did set it uh, more than a year ago. Uh, and we use it ourselves internally, but we don't actually communicate it externally. That might be the same with Salesforce. Yep, same for us at Salesforce. We've got an internal price that we use that creates the financial incentives to encourage low carbon behavior, whether it's citing a data center like I touched on or investing in energy efficiency. So that, what that does is you're preparing for someday when there's a real price on carbon, you'll be ready. Yeah, right? we're building the muscles. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hi, uh, Warner Chabot, San Francisco Estuary Institute. First, thank you for the leadership that you and your organizations provide. My question is this. The Bay Area is the global headquarters for most of the tech companies that have transformed how two-thirds of the world communicates, accesses knowledge, works, and entertains itself. With that amazing capacity, the Bay Area should become the international model of how local communities tackle climate change and adaptation. Above and beyond the good work that you're doing with Autodesk with the Resilient by Design project, can you talk about what you are encouraging your employees to do to be more engaged in community planning efforts to improve the quality of life for your employees and those communities to make the Bay Area a model for climate adaptation and local planning? Linnell Cameron. Well, I can say one of the interesting projects that we worked on a couple years ago was um, with a company called Owlized. And if you, you can picture those um, eyes that you look at the Grand Canyon in, you look through, and we worked with them to model different scenarios in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, of what would look like with you know a one-foot storm surge versus three-foot versus, versus higher. And the whole point of that was to engage the public in a conversation about climate and what if. And so you know, there's a lot of different efforts, and that's what we can really bring is that modeling software to think about what would it look like under these different scenarios and then engage the, the public in that conversation. Mm -hmm. Patrick Flynn, there's a, a map that shows uh, the, the Bay Area with the headquarters of Facebook and Google, a lot of them right by the water, mm -hmm. and with just a little bit of sea level rise, mm -hmm. they're inundated, and yet those companies, Oracle, your fierce rival, they don't like to talk about it very much. Uh, you know, some people joke, oh, my office is on the second floor, or they think they'll, they'll 
have money to move up the hill. Mm -hmm. But those companies, they, what is it, the time horizons or something? Why don't they like to talk about something that's a real direct long-term mm. risk to their mm. campus and, and employment? Yeah, probably indirect, long-term. It's really tough to get real about something that's so abstract and impersonal. I think it, it harkens back to your comment about how do you make climate change real to a skeptic and, and things of that nature. Um, to the question about employee engagement and resilience, we've got one out of five members of the Salesforce uh, workforce is members of Earth Force, our green team, and it's how we do the many small things throughout the world that add up to big change when you combine them together. And that's one of the best mechanisms that we have for adapting our environmental strategy to the local needs of the particular office where that Earth Force member sits. So we have campaigns that focus on sea level rise or clean energy or waste diversion, but allow the, the teams themselves throughout the globe to figure out what the local issue is that they can, they can attack. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, this, I'm Charlotte Blomestein with the B team. Um, Aaron, would you mind talking a little bit about how the, the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, the TCFD recommendations, have really led to a greater push and expectations of companies to assess them? And maybe Patrick and Linnell, you can talk about how the TCFD recommendations are impacting you and, and if you're thinking about um, supporting and or adopting these recommendations and how that's helping you shift your business strategy and maybe your capital allocation decisions. Aaron Kramer. Thank you. And the B team has been a great partner for us working on, on climate. Um, Might say what it is briefly. Yeah. Uh, B team is a collection of uh, 30 plus leaders of businesses, including Mark Benioff of Salesforce and um, civil society organizations that are looking to shift the economy in a, a more just and sustainable direction. Um, so the task force has come up with recommendations um, that I think um, affect three communities quite a lot. Um, so the first is investors, because this basically ratifies the notion that investors are getting imperfect information about the risks that companies face. And uh, without getting too much into the weeds on securities law, and I'm not a securities lawyer, there, companies, there are a lot of reasons why companies don't predict the future in their filings with the Securities and Exchange Commission because of uh, risks of providing speculative, inaccurate information. This may change that and give better quality information to investors. That's number one. Number two, I'm talking about institutional investors. Number two is all of us, because there are a lot of companies that may not be facing up to climate risks, whether it's on infrastructure or core product. Um, so uh, all of us may be invested in companies that have so-called stranded assets, assets that they believe they can monetize in the coming years, but in fact they may not be able to. The third is for the companies themselves, because without this information, they can't make good decisions. So my hope is that these uh, recommendations will be taken up. So far, European companies are far ahead of American companies in, uh, in embracing uh, the, the guidance from, from this task force. My hope is that um, it will grow, and I, I think it will, but it's going to take some time. Yeah, and, and Salesforce signed on to the support letter for the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, TCFD for short. Um, and I, I think it's one of the most inspiring things, movements out there generally. Uh, we've touched on how we all collectively need to do more faster. And to do more, to do things faster, we need to fire up, I'm a mechanical engineer, fire up some really powerful engines here. And you've got the technology engine represented by companies here. You've got the, the political will and behavioral engines. And you've got the finance engine and the capital markets. And we're starting to see that engine get revved up. The TCFD is calling for greater disclosure through formal financial documents, 10Ks and whatnot. 
And I think of that in the same breath as SASB, the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, which is calling for and defining what investor grade information will be by industry. And so as we get greater transparency and greater disclosure, more comparable data, more auditable data, then the markets have something to respond to. And we know that sustainable business is better business, that sustainable businesses outcompete, right? And there's the classic uh, cost reduction slash margin expansion, do more with less, less energy, less water, less waste, less materials. There's the customer connection. So this is actually something that customers are calling for, whether that's a, a B2B relationship or behind every B2B is a customer on the far end of that chain. So at the end of the B2B relationship is, a, is an individual customer calling for it. TCFD in particular focuses on risk and climate, climate related risk. We know that sustainable businesses are thinking about risk in really uh, adept ways and, and, and that makes them more resilient. And then the last area of business impact I think in sustainability is brand impact. And we can demonstrate that we are listening to stakeholders, listening to where, where individuals want to work, where companies want to do business. And so all of those things combine to make sustainable businesses outcompete. And when we get to show that clearly to the marketplace, then I think that engine is really operating. And then just got to get all those smart companies to come up with a better name for a T brand <laughs> for TCFD. <laughs> name something yeah. that, uh, let's go to our next last question. Andrew, Commonwealth member. Do you see the possibility for an informed and coordinated consumer base to compel sustainability with market forces? Let's talk about that enviro and outside pressure. That, clearly that was part of the, the Greenpeace campaign that's been mentioned. But um, a lot of times uh, actually in business to consumer companies, they, they, uh, they, the gre inside green people like the pressure from outside. Who'd like to tackle that? I think we will see a, a, a great movement here and we're already seeing it. Um, consumers, the way a consumer thinks about a product or service is changing and it's no longer an arm's length transaction for something that's just black and white. It's a demonstration of your values, which company you choose to, to listen to streaming music with or to, to store your file with. You, you can think about the Greenpeace Click and Clean report and your decision um, reflects your values. And I would say we're only increasingly seeing that with the next generation of people and employees who are absolutely demanding something very different than our generation. Greg Dalton has been talking about how green Silicon Valley really is with Linnell Cameron, Vice President of Sustainability at Autodesk, Aaron Kramer, CEO of Business for Social Responsibility, and Patrick Flynn, Senior Director of Sustainability at Salesforce. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirshner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.